0: Welcome to everybody for thank you for joining us uh, for this CBRL webinar. My name is Carol Palmer, and I'm the CBRL director in Amman, Jordan, where I'm uh, where I'm jo- joining you from today. And where in the last week it's uh, it's turned very wintry, um, so the seasons have moved on. So, Council for British Research in the Levant, for those of you who may not be familiar with our organization, we're an independent research charity and membership organization based in the UK with um, institutes in the region, one in Amman and one in uh, East Jerusalem. And we're founded to do conduct research and uh, disseminate information and knowledge on uh, the Levant or the Levantine Middle East. We're actually part of the British Academy's seven British International Research Institutes, Um, and via the British Academy we receive a grant in aid uh, to help us continue our operations, but we're always grateful to our members and friends who support us in various ways uh, to do additional events and additional projects. Um, in normal times, we would be doing events in person, of course, as well. But we have moved online with the current situation, and uh, we're very happy that, despite um, being a very difficult situation, it's allowed us to uh, connect across continents. Um, and indeed, today our speakers are speaking from North America, from London, from Germany, and and from the region, from the Levant, I'm in Jordan, myself. Um, We hope that you enjoy today's webinar and that you will join us for future events too. Uh, Do take a look at our website for more information about CBRL if you're new to us and uh, please do sign up to our mailing list uh, if you're not already receiving notices about these events um, through our regular emails. Um, our, I'm just going to before introducing our chair today. Um, I'm going to just give some a few house rules and what to expect uh, today. How we run our CVRL webinars. Um, first of all, um, I'll hand over to our chair, Marina Risto, um, and. Um, And then she will introduce our speaker and author of A Commerce of Knowledge, uh, Dr. Simon Mills. Um, He'll speak for around 20 minutes or so, and then we'll have a conversation between the chair and uh, and Simon um, for about another 20 minutes. And then we invite you, or even during the talks, We invite you to um, put your questions that you would like to ask of uh, of our speaker and chair um, in the Q&A, please. Um, Put them as they occur to you throughout the talk, but we'll come later on to ask your questions. Please um, keep your questions short, Um, generally one question per person and when Uh, We're asking the questions, we'll read them out from the Q&A, including your name, unless you specifically indicate that you don't wish um, to be named. So um, I'm going to now introduce our chair, um, Professor Marina Rostow is the Hedori A. Zilcha Professor of Near Eastern Studies and Professor of History at uh, Princeton University, director of the Princeton Genitza Lab and director of the Near Eastern Studies Program there. She's the author of Heresy and the Politics of Community, The Jews of the Fatimid Caliphate, um, published in 2008, and of the Lost Archive, Finding a Caliphate in a Cairo Synagogue, 2020, most recently. We'd like to thank her very much for being, for agreeing to be chair uh, today, um, it, it's wonderful to have you with us, and we're very much looking forward to uh, to this uh, presentation and conversation on um, on this book. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Carol, for the introduction and also for the invitation to um, chair this event. Um, this, uh, this book is very close to my heart, um, although Simon and I had never met before um, we started corresponding about, about this particular event, but um, we know some of the same characters, so I'm really happy to be here. Um, it's a pleasure to introduce Dr. Simon Mills, who is lecturer in Early Modern History at Newcastle University, where he's been since 2019. Um, and where he teaches the history of science, the history of ideas, and also the relationships between early modern Europe and the Ottoman Empire. Um, Simon has held a number of prestigious fellowships at the Center for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and and Humanities, known affectionately as CRASH, its acronym, at the University of Cambridge, um, at the Dahlem Humanities Center at the Free University in Berlin, and he's also been a Leverhulme Early Career Fellowship at the University of Kent between 2014 and 2017. He was also a British Institute scholar here at the Council for British Research in the Levant in Amman, while he also undertook um, or pursued his Arabic studies at the Qasid Institute. Um, His book, which we're going to be talking about today, uh, is called A Commerce of Knowledge, Trade, Religion, and Scholarship Between England and the Ottoman Empires, circa 1600 to 1760. Um, It was published in uh, January of 2020, a very early review, I don't even know if you've seen this yet, Simon, Um, has praised it as reconstructing a deeply human world in which scholars from different religious traditions came together to exchange ideas, which in 2020 sounds less like a sort of weak palliative and more like a distant utopia. So with that, I leave it to you, Simon.
2: Thank you. Okay, well, hopefully you can see my the first slide there, yeah. So I begin with a photograph of the, the Karnel Jomruk Customs Khan in the old city of uh, Aleppo in Syria, which I took in the winter of 2010. Uh, and I begin in this way partly because it gives me a chance to say thank you to Carol and to, to the CBRL. I was in Syria uh, during my year as a British Institute scholar in Amman, which is where I w- was able to begin Work on what would eventually become a commerce of knowledge. So it's really a pleasure to be able to speak for this series about the book. Uh, I admit, uh, I mentioned the date uh, somewhat hesitantly because it reveals how long it took me to see the, the project through to completion. And I'm not really sure that anybody would judge that a single book for your library uh, 10 years later was very much by way uh, of return for awarding me the scholarship, but um, I uh, nevertheless, am very glad that you did. So the the Karnal Jumruk was built in 1574 under the Ottomans as a commercial building to serve Aleppo's then expanding role in the silk trade. And by the 17th century, it was being used by the small European communities, Venetian and French merchants who'd been drawn uh, to Syria by that trade. And the reason I went to see this building in particular is because certainly by the second half of the 17th century, it was home to the 50 or so English merchants then living and working in Aleppo and what was fascinating to learn in 2010 was not only that the building was still being used for purposes very similar to those for which it had been built in the 16th century but also that the men uh, working there with whom I talked were well aware of the history of the building's former use by European merchants. Well, I ask you perhaps to hold that image of the Karnal the Jumruk in Syria in mind as I turn to what might seem the very different topic of the quotation with which I began the book, The Commerce of Knowledge. The author is a 17th century theologian and Hebrew scholar called John Lightfoot, uh, writing from the wonderfully named parish of Muchmunden in Hertfordshire. And he's addressing an Oxford scholar called Edward Bernard who had recently succeeded Sir Christopher Wren as a civilian professor of astronomy at Oxford and who had a very wide range of interests including the then fashionable study of what were called at the time the oriental languages a broad category including Hebrew and Arabic and Syriac but also languages uh, such as Persian and they're talking about a third Englishman a man called Robert Huntington who had recently sent Bernard an account of his activities in Syria and Lightfoot after expressing his approval of everything Bernard had told him about Huntington's travels, says in the second part of the quotation here, but I could half find it in my heart to envy him for this, for that he hath the ocular view of those places in the land of Canaan that I have been blundering to find out till I have been ready to lose myself as I have sitten here. And this image of a 17th century Hebrew scholar lamenting uh, his having missed the chance he might have had to see Palestine for himself, led me to a question, which was what was the relationship, if indeed there was one, between, on the one hand, Lightfoot's world of biblical and oriental scholarship, which I'd first come to as a student of the history of ideas, and secondly, the contemporary beginnings of English trade in the Ottoman Empire, and the presence of those English merchants in the Khan el Jumruk? And my key to answering this question was to look to the chaplains sent out in the last years of the 16th century to minister to the English merchants. I've just mentioned one of them, Robert Huntington, but here's probably the most well-known, Edward Pocock. Uh, Pocock traveled to Aleppo as a young man in 1630, and he spent six years in the city as chaplain to the English merchants and consul. He used his years in Syria to learn Arabic and to piece together a very substantial collection of Arabic and Hebrew manuscripts, which would eventually come into the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Poc- Pocock was appointed uh, in 1636 by the then Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord, the first professor of Arabic at Oxford, a chair which still exists today. He later returned to the Ottoman Empire as chaplain to the English ambassador in Istanbul where he continued his studies and his collecting. And he went on in the course of a long life to become not only one of the leading European scholars of Arabic in the 17th century but also a very important Hebraist and particularly a pioneer in the field of Judeo-Arabic, that is Arabic written in Hebrew script used by the Arabic-speaking Jews of the medieval Middle East. So Pocock and some of the other chaplains through their biographies and through their careers uh, encapsulated for me themes with which uh, I was concerned in the book, trade, religion, and scholarship. Well, although I begin in England, most of the action of the book plays out in Aleppo. Uh, And one of the questions I wanted to investigate was what level of interaction did Pocock Huntington and other chaplains have with the Jewish, Christian and Muslim residents of Ottoman Syria? Most histories which I'd read uh, to date of the Ottoman Empire uh, tended to depict uh, the English merchants as living in isolation from the local population, but I wanted to interrogate whether that was really the case. So I went back to the records from Aleppo in the National Archives in Kew. And I began to find documents uh, like this. It's a note to payment uh, to two men serving as what were called malims from the Arabic mu'allim whose job was to oversee the transport of goods between Aleppo and the port at Iskandarun. And you can probably see on the slide here uh, that they've entered their own Arabic signatures in the minute book in the English consul. The one on the left interested me particularly because As you might be able to see, the man's name is Haj Ahmed or Hamid in the first line of the English text. It's an 18th century biography of Pocock in which the author gives some account of Pocock's time in Aleppo. And he happens to mention that uh, Pocock employed a servant named Hamid to improve his spoken Arabic. So looking at this document in the National Archives, I realized that it wasn't impossible. I'd found here the signature of the man who helped Pocock to learn Arabic. Well, that's of course a bit uh, speculative there was no doubt uh, more than one person called Ahmed in 17th century Aleppo but it is possible to connect Pocock to another Ahmed uh, a man called Ahmed al gulshani who largely from colophons such as this one in a manuscript now in Pocock's collection was able to identify as a Sufi and a member of the Gulshaniya lodge mentioned in some of the biographical dictionaries from 17th century Aleppo. Ahmed al gulshani acquired on Pocock's behalf, a very large number uh, of the books which Pocock was able to buy in Aleppo, among them works on poetry, literary criticism, lexicography, geography, history, medicine, algebra, astronomy, philosophy, and religion. All of this material would be essential to Pocock's later career as a scholar of Arabic. Ahmed Al-Shani also not only bought manuscripts on Pocock's behalf but tutored him in Arabic. We know from the report of a rival collector in Aleppo that over the course of the year, Ahmed al Shani and Pocock worked together through a manuscript of the Proverbs or Amphal of the philologist Al-Maidani, a translation of which from Arabic Pokop Pocock made during his time abroad. It's important perhaps to stress here that Aleppo was by no means only an Islamic city in the 17th century. Many of the chaplains most important scholarly connections were with the Jews and Christians of Ottoman Syria. Another part of the book explores Robert Huntington's collaboration with this man, a Samaritan called Marhib ben Jacob, or Mufarraj ibn Yaqoub in Arabic, as he has signed his name here in a reader's note in one of the manuscripts bought in Nablus by Robert Huntington, a historical chronicle by the Samaritan author Abul Fatah. The Samaritans were particularly of interest to Huntington and European scholars of his generation, owing in large part to the belief that the Samaritan script was an older form of Hebrew than the more familiar so called square script. And Huntington went to great lengths to persuade uh, Mahid ben Jacob and the Samaritans to send a copy of their Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, to England. And uh, sad to say, Pocock was not wholly honest in his dealings with uh, Mahed ben Jacob. Huntingdon was also uh, in contact with other Jewish booksellers in Aleppo and Damascus and was able to acquire through them an important collection of biblical and post-biblical literature. Among his most extraordinary finds were parts of the Mishnah Torah by probably the greatest uh, medieval Jewish scholar Maimonides, containing amazingly Maimonides' own signature uh, and a part uh, of Maimonides' working copy of his commentary on the Mishnah, extraordinarily uh, the same manuscript which Pocock had found in Aleppo probably 40 years earlier. Huntington was also the most important uh, collector of uh, Eastern Christian manuscripts. And so another part of my book reconstructs Huntington's relationship with the then Maronite patriarch of Antioch, Estefana Dewehi, upon whom Huntington drew to locate books in Syriac and Arabic from the Lebanese monasteries in Mount Lebanon. The image which you see here is a copy, uh, Huntington's copy of uh, al Fatib, Questions on Medicine by Hanan Ibn Ishaq, which Huntington acquired from uh, Lebanon and which contains uh, marginal notes, which might well at least Huntington thought be in the hand of Estefana de Wehi himself. In his collecting among the Christians in Syria, Huntington was particularly interested in the works of early Christian authors, whose writings might have survived in Syriac versions. Huntington was perhaps the most adventurous of all the chaplains uh, who served in Aleppo and in search of books, he traveled not only throughout Syria, but also uh, to Jerusalem, to Cyprus and to Egypt. So in covering in this way, the English chaplains dependence on the collaborators whom they encountered in Ottoman Syria raised for me a series of further questions. First, I was led to ask to what extent men such as Ahmed al ghashani determined the interests of collectors like Pocock and Huntington And what I found here was actually that the English chaplains came to Syria with a pretty firm idea of what they wanted to achieve. Their priorities in general were set by the concerns of European scholarship and the whole question of developments within that scholarship across both Catholic and Protestant Europe was one of the issues I tried to explore in the book. However, within the boundaries determined by those pre-existing interests, the particular works and the particular copies of those works acquired by the chaplains were very often a result of the decisions of their Ottoman interlocutors. This then raised a further question, which is to what extent were the collections brought home by Pocock, Huntington, and other chaplains reflective of local scholarly cultures in the Ottoman Empire? And the answer to that question is one of the things I try to tease out throughout the course of the book. Okay, well, that's a very small sample. Uh, and in the interests of trying to keep to time, I'll do no more now than say in passing, but I also try to think about the topic of the chaplain's interests in antiquities, what we might now call the material culture of Syria. Among other schemes, uh, I tell the story of two early expeditions to the ruins of Palmyra, which you see depicted here in a 17th century account inspired by those expeditions. The first, uh, alas, met with little success. The explorers were robbed and were forced to retreat hastily to Aleppo. The second, undertaken by a group of English merchants and a chaplain called William Halifax fared somewhat better in that Halifax was able to bring back from the site albeit rather crude copies of inscriptions in Palmyrene, an Aramaic dialect which was then undeciphered by Europeans. And again here I try to emphasize how this was less a straightforward case of European discovery but rather uh, that any knowledge acquired in Syria was dependent in different ways on the know-how and the traditions both of the local Ottoman population uh, and of the long established presence of Roman Catholic uh, clerics across the Levant. Uh, in the final part of the book uh, I deal with the chaplain's early attempts to launch an English mission in Syria and the production of printed Arabic Bibles in close collaboration with the Greek Orthodox Church uh, in Aleppo and in particular with the 18th century Greek Orthodox patriarch of Antioch, a man called Athanasius Dabas and I explore among other things the production of the work which you see here on the right, printed book of Arabic Psalms uh, produced in London in 1725, and the way in which its production was very closely bound up with the book on the right, the same work printed in Aleppo in 1706, often identified as the first Arabic book printed in the Ottoman Empire. So in conclusion then I want to return to the question with which I began, that is the nature uh, of the relationship between trade and scholarship. Why, you might ask, posed this question in the first place. Well, one of the things that led me in this direction was reading what I thought was a very thoughtful review article by the historian Francesca Tribolato. She was thinking largely of recent work, not on England, but on Italy and Italian connections to the Muslim Mediterranean. And she finished her review by asking how we might conceptualize the relationship between culture and economics, what do European exchanges with the Ottoman Empire documented by scholars working in art, architectural or intellectual history tell us about this relationship? The answer which I developed through my study of the English chaplains is I think twofold, one relating to a micro and one to a macro level. First perhaps I should say what I think uh, the book does not argue, which is that there was no straightforwardly deterministic relationship between the expansion of English trade in the Ottoman Empire and the concomitant development of Oriental studies uh, in England. The collecting and investigation of the chaplains actually did very little to serve the political or commercial interests of the English Levant Company or the English state. On a micro level, I suggest throughout the book that we need to look to particulars it really mattered for English scholarship that the English established connections in Aleppo and in Istanbul, rather than, say, in Cairo or in Baghdad, because these connections were their way into local scholarly cultures, and made it possible, them to, made it possible for them to pursue uh, certain antiquarian or missionary schemes. Pocock and Huntington were really able uh, to buy the manuscripts they did because of those relationships which they formed with Ahmed Agul Shani, Maheb Ben Yaqub, Istifana Dewehi, de Dabas, and others. And those manuscripts then to a large extent uh, determined the course of scholarly projects in 17th and 18th century England, and indeed further afield. On the macro level, I argue that there was a connection between on the one hand, the movement uh, from the mid 18th century onwards away from the kind of biblically centered Oriental studies at the heart of my book to new interests in Persian and the languages of East Asia. Uh, And on the other hand, a shift in English commercial interests away from Syria to India Again, this is not because scholars pursued projects which might be useful to commercial or political agendas, but rather because new lines of communication opened up between England and the Persian Gulf, brought with them opportunities to collect manuscripts and information, a development which I trace in the final section of the book through the figure of the Oxford Orientalist Thomas Hyde. But the final thing I'll say, and the point uh, which perhaps I would like to stress most of all, is this that telling the history of European Oriental studies from uh, not from Aleppo, but not, sorry, not from Oxford, but from, uh, uh, not from Oxford or, or, or Rome or Paris or, or Leiden, but as seen from Aleppo brings into much sharper focus, the role of Ottoman subjects as scholars, tutors, informers, copyists, brokers, and dealers, and indeed as mediators between local learned cultures and Western Europe. And this is important, I think, because both uh, the older saidian model of Orientalism, but also to a large extent, the much more nuanced and specialized histories of Western Oriental studies have tended to understand this scholarship as a predominantly European phenomenon. What I've tried to argue here is that when we move back a stage and look at the initial acquisition of manuscripts and the skills required to interpret them, we can begin to reconceptualize the history of European Oriental studies as a process of transmission between Ottoman uh, and European scholarly cultures, or to use the language of the book as commerce between East and West. Thank you very much for listening.
1: Thank you so much, Simon. That was um, an amazingly comprehensive yet brief um, introduction to the book, um, which I'm sure our listeners appreciated, whether or not they've actually um, read the book already. And it actually start. I mean, you kind of ended exactly where I want to begin. Um, so I I come to this book from far outside the early modern period. I'm a medievalist, and I deal with Um, Arabic and Judeo-Arabic manuscripts. And so for me, I got really excited about um, your book and found it to be a breakthrough um, in a couple of ways. Um, First of all, the goal of of my field of study, so Medieval Arabic and Judeo-Arabic for the last 200 years has been, for example, like if you're dealing with an 11th century work, to basically erase everything after the 11th century. Um, in the interest of avoiding anachronism. Um, and one of the things that you want to try and erase is the mistakes that were made by scribes in copying the work throughout the centuries. And you want to get back to the text, right? This is the goal of philology is let's get back to the purest, most original form of the text that we can, the, uh, the book as the, as the author composed it. But in fact, um, This is a bit of a a sort of artificial way of proceeding because learning was never just uh, book learning anywhere, but it especially wasn't just book learning in the Islamic world where learning was always situated in a chain of transmission um, of masters and disciples. So in a sense, the later history of these works and how they were transmitted in a very specific social context is a part of their history. And that's an awareness that I think has finally come to Uh, manuscript studies in general, and Middle Eastern manuscript studies in specific, um, especially in the last decade or so, there's really this kind of awareness of we have to read the marginalia, we have to read the the ownership notes and understand the full history of the manuscript as an object. Um, But also even where scholars of Middle Eastern manuscripts have concerned themselves with how libraries acquired the manuscripts that um, they did and when they did so, whether it was in the 17th century or in the case of many of the North American collections in the 19th century, um, European and North American scholars have focused on the European collectors while just assuming that it was impossible to know anything about their sources and contacts in the Middle East itself. So your book demonstrates that not only can we know where they collected and with whose help, we can also understand just how dependent these scholars and manuscript collectors were on the generosity and the erudition of specific individuals whom we can name and whose intellectual horizons um, and cultural world we can reconstruct. So you say um, uh, somewhere in the book, it is possible that on occasion Europeans participated directly in auctions at Aleppo because book auctions were the main place where books were acquired, however, they more likely depended on intermediaries to purchase the books for them. In fact, one of the most interesting aspects of European collectors, you say, is their reliance on local scholars. Native Arabic speakers in cities such as Aleppo could serve both as practical guides into the labyrinths of local book markets and as intellectual mentors, inducting Europeans into the traditions of Arabic Islamic scholarship. So sort of moving beyond this purely um, transactional, relationship to the text and talking about an actual um, relationship of intellectual transmission. So that that brings me to, to my first question, um, which is, when did you first realize that you could write a book, not just about the English chaplains to the Blount Company, not just about Pocock and Huntington um, and the others, but also about their local contacts. In other words, that you could write a connected intellectual history, of the Ottoman Empire, and English commerce and learning. Um, I think, you know, often we have to explain to our doctoral students, it's not enough to have a good question. Um, your question also has to be answerable from the sources. So at what point do you, did you realize that this, this project was actually viable?
2: Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think if I'm very honest, I uh, would say I, 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 it wasn't entirely clear to me that it was viable until um, I'd finished the book in the sense in the sense that um, through the course of uh, researching and writing it the, um, the whole question of the um, of, of the kind of uh, intellectual or scholarly environment in which English collectors were working was something I had to very slowly piece together and, uh, and, uh, and try to try to work out and um, I mean I suppose it was I suppose the I mean, my starting point for the book was always really uh, European sources, and and, and probably um, I, I would say mo- most of all uh, letters. So I think the, the the point of departure was really the letters, which uh, putting together all the letters which I could find, which chaplains wrote home uh, from Aleppo, uh, and reading them, and then one finds occasional mentions of, uh, of of the figures with whom they're. Um, uh, interacting and, uh, and dealing with. And so it was really a case of working out, outwards from those to try and begin to reconstruct the, the world in which they were, they were working. Uh, I could, maybe I could say more about the sources, but I don't know if you, if you want to, you had other.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the, in the pragmatics of this as well. I mean, how did you think to look for certain sources? Um, you know, where did you suspect you might find something um, were there smoking guns where suddenly you saw the project differently from how you'd seen it before?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the one of the one of the first ways into it was um, this the figure whom I mentioned, uh, Ahmed al Shani, and that really came from uh, work which had been done before I wrote the book, um, partly by the uh, the, the Arab scholar of uh, Islamic history, uh, Peter Malcolm Holt, who, who first uh, discovered these letters in the Bodleian Library and then in um, Gerald Tumas book on the history of Arabic studies and so I went and looked at those uh, letters in the volume when I was first uh, beginning this project and I suppose started to think who was this character how, did, how would Pocock have come into contact with him um, how, how did he manage to find these books uh, and from there I, there were two, uh, two other um, ways which I tried to find back into his, uh, his world the first was um, the, the Colophons Uh, to to some of the manuscripts which he collected from Pocock and as you'll know very well one sometimes finds uh, reading colophons very interesting snippets of information so he'll refer to himself as uh, uh, Al-Halabi so you you can assume you know that he's from Aleppo and in one of them he says uh, he refers to himself as Al-Gushani Tariq so so he mentions that he's affiliated with this um, uh, Sufi order in um, in Aleppo, so that was another thing. And then, and then I also looked to the um, biographical dictionaries of seventeenth century Aleppo to see if I could find out uh, anything about this um, world. Uh, and I would say that the that the insights really were few and far between. It took a, it took quite a long time to try to reconstruct this uh, uh, this um, environment. And then, of course, that was uh it's set against my own uh developing reading in the, the field of uh, uh early in the work of middle eastern historians and um, uh and various things that people have done in that uh in that um on that topic as well so it it, it, it built up very slowly yeah
1: it is often true that we don't know whether our project is viable until after we finish it. So, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm very sympathetic to that. Um, a couple of just um, housekeeping notes before I ask you a follow-up to that, um, which is uh, first of all at least one listener um, has said that the volume is low, Simon. So if you could just be uh, closer to your microphone, yeah. that would be helpful. Um, and then also I just want to issue a reminder, some of you have started to do this already to formulate your questions and put them into the chat, even as we're speaking, because it's always better to get those questions out there while they're fresh um, and uh, and and we'll turn to you um, at the end of our discussion. Um, so were there sources that you looked for, but- couldn't find um were there roadblocks where you thought wow I, I i really want to go in this direction but i just i can't because i can't find the evidence
2: i would say that one of them was um about uh, one thing i really wanted to do in the book and it was uh in in some ways it was it was an extraordinarily difficult task but i thought it was important was to try to say at least something about the whole uh Breadth of the of the uh, of, of the cultural and um, religious diversity that uh, Pocock and Huntington etc would have encountered in Aleppo, I, it would have been in some respects easier for me to to focus the whole of that section on um, on, on Pocock and Apollonioshali and to talk mainly about uh, Pocock's collection of uh, of Arabic materials, but that would have in some senses misrepresented what he and Huntington were doing in that they were they had these extraordinarily eclectic interests in. Uh, in uh, Which encompass both uh, Jewish and um, Christian literature, but I would say that probably the uh, the, the question of the Jewish um, uh, culture uh, in Aleppo was was the hardest thing for me to to reconstruct, and that was partly, of course, because of my own lack of uh, skills to do it, but also because I think, on one sense, that uh, I'm not sure if it was if it's a consequence of the, the kinds of prejudices that Europeans have, but they tend to say much less about the uh, Jewish uh, intellectual life and the, th- the things that one gets in Pocock's biography, for example, uh, tend to be a bit quite uh, dismissive of, uh, of of that uh, culture. And then also, I think it's just chance that it's that there are several points where um, Huntington talks in some of his letters about uh, 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 Jewish um, intermediaries with, from whom he's bought manuscripts. And this may be the point where he's acquiring the, the you know the Maimonides manuscripts, which are so famous. But he's he's uh, frustratingly um, uh, reticent about saying. Anything about these these people from whom he's buying manuscripts? So so that, so there there are quite large uh, lacuna, and I would say that that, uh, that, they, that those pertain particularly to um to uh, to the kind of Jewish intellectual world that uh, the the chaplain's encountered in Aleppo. Yeah, I mean, oh. sorry, yeah, no, that's that that, that that's uh, you go ahead. Yeah.
1: so yeah, no, I and mean, hopefully other others will uh, will follow up. Um... On, on some of those leads that you kind of left dangling. Um, a book can't do everything after all. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, that actually leads nicely into the next question I wanted to ask about, which is why Aleppo? So the first book, the first part of your book centers more on Aleppo than the second. In the second half, there's more kind of traveling around, going in search mm-hmm. of curiosities, especially Huntington, because he he traveled quite a bit more than Pocock around Syria and Palestine and made it as far as Basra in Iraq. Um, but you really get the sense of local context in Aleppo you you know how close the khan al-jumruk was um, you know to the the tekke to the sufi lodge um, where al-ghushani was a member I and mean, you had this kind of you know microhistorical picture of aleppo could you have done the same kind of historical study for other places, say for Constantinople or Alexandria or Smyrna, the other places where there were Levant Company outposts, or even somewhere in Morocco or some of the Venetian colonies. And if you could have done so, would you have wanted to, or was Aleppo really the the, the story that you wanted to tell?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I think certainly, it, and I thought about this for a long time when writing the book. It could I could have written, uh, I could have done it for uh, Aleppo, uh, Istanbul, Constantinople, and. Uh, Smyrna Izmir, probably less so for the last because I don't think that um, certainly from the perspective of the, the Europeans who were there, uh, Smyrna Izmir was quite such an important uh, centre for for learning, particularly for manuscript collecting. Although there would have been very interesting things that uh, could be said about um, the, 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 the later parts of the book, i.e. the uh, the, the exploration of antiquities and material culture uh, from Smyrna. So I think it could have, it could have been a book about um, Aleppo or, Uh, as it was but it could also have been a book about um, uh, Constantinople Istanbul and I think one of the reasons I I didn't do that was because it would have made it a slightly or or a very different book firstly because there were there were things in um, Constantinople which uh, chaplains couldn't do in Aleppo and one of those was collecting Greek manuscripts so obviously the the book makes this connection between English trade and the Ottoman Empire and this particular branch of um, scholarship in terms of what we're calling Oriental Studies, but um, but that wasn't that wasn't the whole story. And many of the chaplains were, who ended up going to um, Constantinople were particularly interested, interested more than anything perhaps in uh, collecting Greek manuscripts. And that wasn't particularly the story I wanted to tell. I wanted to talk about this uh, encounter between um, uh, the, the kind of world that they um, found themselves in in Aleppo. And then I think part of your question really uh, gives the answer to to why I chose to do it to focus on a single city which was I really wanted to write a kind of history of ideas and a history of exchange which really tried as much as I could to um, drill down into particulars to think about exactly how did um, Pocock and Huntington acquire these manuscripts who were the the characters whom they met and uh, what sort of relationships did they have how would they have come into contact with each other where would they have met uh, uh, one another and it seemed to me that those sorts of questions could be best answered by a kind of microhistory, which made the city of Aleppo itself almost one of its characters and tried to think about the, the space of Aleppo and so I devoted quite a lot of the first part of the book to thinking about where the chaplains lived, uh, what kinds of um, interactions they might possibly have had there, what other sorts of um, uh, intellectual and cultural life w- were happening in Aleppo and to what extent would the chaplains have been able to uh, gain any insight or Access to this, so, it, so it, the whole thing, I think, from quite early on, seemed to work as a, as a sort of micro history, as you say, of, of a single city. And Aleppo seemed to be the place we, um, where I could get into to the book as much of the intellectual material as, uh, as as possible. So that so that was really the, the decision to, to to do Aleppo.
1: So it's it's interesting. The t- so the title of the book, "A Commerce of Knowledge," is kind of a. It's I mean, it's taken from one of your sources. But it's also a play on this idea that, um, that commerce for the people you discuss in your book was not just about, you know, the trade in silk and other commodities, but also about interchange, about intellectual interchange. And there's also another kind of nice quotation that you use as a chapter title, which is Turkey labors. um, From one of the English chaplains in the 1680s, John Guise, who refers to the fruits of my Turkey labors. So we know that Turkey is often used as a kind of shorthand for the entire Ottoman world, although it was much more than just Turkish. Um, but tell us about labor as a concept underpinning the book. Um, and I'll just like, you know, say what I mean by the question. Um, you quote a, a really interesting passing suggestion of the early modern historian of science, Lorraine Daston, um, that this distinctive brand, she says, of early modern European curiosity about the unfamiliar was not just intellectual interest, but also, in a sense, um, a, qu- a kind of hunger or even greed or consumerism. Um, the dynamics of which she says, mirrored those of the trade in luxuries. But your book in some ways actually contests this claim. Um, You say that Europeans really weren't in a position to consume anything um, without local help. And, And I think for me, the moment when the penny dropped was, um, you compared your 17th century collectors uh, with the 19th century collectors with whom I'm more familiar because I work uh, primarily on a collection that was gathered together in, or dispersed I should say, in the late 19th century. Um, you say the early modern collector was a much tamer beast than his successor, the antiquarian imperialist of the 19th century. Um, the examples you offer, are Curzon and Tischendorf, both of whom divested various monasteries in the Ottoman Empire in Egypt of some of their oldest biblical manuscripts. Um, And you say that these 19th century imperialists had the money to buy at any cost and the audacity when buying was not an option to steal. But is there also not a kind of balance of power, right? Um, The Ottomans had the upper hand militarily in the 17th century, um, whereas the Europeans did in the 19th century. So the Europeans really weren't in a position to steal um, in in the 17th century, in a way that they they would have been in the 19th, and to and to get away with it. So, can you talk about both the labor aspects of this and the power aspects of it?
2: Yeah, that's. A, uh, well, maybe I'll start with the second part, the the uh, the power aspects. And what you said is absolutely right. And um, I think one of the uh, one of one of the topics I started reading about it, when beginning the book was to think about the way that. Um, uh, economic historians had um, had written recently about Euro- european trade in the ottoman empire and the impression i got was very much that there was uh, an attempt to move beyond an idea of europeans as the, the sort of um, the, the drivers and the kind of outward going uh, uh, force of uh, of the development of uh, of trade in the 16th and 17th century and instead to to try to think about the way that uh, when uh, French or English merchants turned up in Aleppo and uh, other places, they were entering a kind of commercial environment that was already well established before they got there. Uh, and they, uh, by necessity, were forced to depend on local uh, economic structures and local economic practices in order for their uh, trade to be successful. And it seemed to me that that was quite, that I could, that was quite a good way of also thinking about the question of collecting, that it might be possible to get beyond perhaps what um, people's uh, first thoughts would be of European collectors, where I think probably most of us would very much project back this idea of 19th century collectors and instead uh, try to think that um, Europeans were turning up in worlds of, uh, of intellectual, the intellectual commerce of the book, book markets and this kind of thing, which were already very well established before they got there. Um, there's one section in the book where I, and this was the only bit of uh, explicit evidence that I found um, stating this, where um, one of the uh, a rival collector to Pocock mentions the, uh, the fact of a Persian manuscript in uh, a Persian manuscript collector in Aleppo buying up a whole library, and so you really get this idea of Europeans as being in competition with uh, with other um, Ottoman or in this case uh, Persian uh, collectors, and so and so that sense that Europeans weren't entirely uh, driving everything they had to. They had to carefully edge their way into something which was there uh, before they, which existed before they arrived. There was really something I wanted to try to get to grips with in in, uh, talking about um, uh, commerce in this intellectual and uh, and scholarly sense. In terms of uh, labour, I suppose that um, one of the questions which I wanted to try to answer, which I would never really, as far as I could tell. Uh, being even posed, really in works which had, anything which had been written about the, the chaplains and their experience before I began was uh, what, were, what were they doing there what was their um, motivation in some in, I mean there's a straightforward answer to that which was that they were paid by the Levant company to, to minister to the um, to, to the English merchants and the consul uh, but the Levant company expected uh, not very much more often than that uh, and that clearly wasn't the only reason why Lots of them went there, uh, so I began to think about um, what were their connections with uh, the kinds of um, uh, uh, relationships with the, with uh, friends and scholars uh, in Europe that they maintained, but also what were the kind of expectations on them of of, of, uh, of going to Aleppo. And, I, and my feeling was that, uh, particularly in people like Huntington, who I talked about, you, you can really see this um, sense in which uh, there's a whole uh, community of European scholars of depending on Huntington as their way into uh, this world of um, of uh, Middle Eastern intellectual life, and also all of the, the, the possibilities for antiquarian explanation, which I talk about as well. And so uh, it's this: the, the labour comes from this sense of expectation to a scholarly community, and that of course fits you know very well into the the kinds of things that uh, historians have been talking about for a long time about the Republic of Letters and uh, the kinds of uh, social codes governing. Uh, scholarly life in the the early modern period. And so I suppose my, what I was trying to do was think about how that Republic of Letters and how those social codes might expand to an outpost like um, Aleppo.
1: So um, I'm going to bring in at this point a question uh, from one of our attendees, Nagihan Halilolu asks um, an excellent question, which is, can you say a bit more about how denominational differences between Brits and Syrians in particular played out in acquiring or producing these manuscripts?
2: Mm. Well, maybe if I could just say something very briefly first, which is perhaps... Not quite related to the question, which is that there were there were also very important uh, denominational differences between the various Europeans in uh, Syria in Aleppo, and that's one very important important part of the book which I haven't really talked about, which is the kind of competition that uh, goes on between, say, uh, English and uh, French merchants or, or collectors, and that's of course uh, denominational because it's about the uh, the competing agendas of uh, of Protestants and Catholics in in Europe and and the way that Oriental studies as a discipline is is integral to those uh, uh, divisions. In terms of uh, uh, denominational differences between the English and the Syrians, I suppose um, that one part of the story which I wanted to to tell was that there there are these moments where um, uh, in relationships like the one between uh, Pocock and Ahmed Al-Bushani, where um, that uh, it, it's possible in a city like Aleppo in a way that it, it, uh, was perhaps unique to um, places like Aleppo, uh, where it was possible for them to, uh, to to overlook to some extent professional differences and and to be united by the the kinds of scholarly projects which uh, which they shared. So I, I mentioned very briefly in the presentation that um, uh, Huntington. Uh, treated less than honorably the, the samaritans and that's perhaps the one point in the book where one can see a, a certain sort of confessional difference perhaps in, in the sense that um the, uh, the the european scholars involved clearly um uh thought that it uh, or, or allow themselves to, to deceive the, the samaritans uh, because of the importance which they judged of acquiring a copy of the pentateuch and there and there i try to explain that perhaps in by thinking about the way that these these bonds of uh, friendship, which is the expression, the term which Huntington himself uses, perhaps have limits when, uh, uh, as I said in the book, I think uh, the, the kind of the, the stakes are so high in terms of the intellectual gains to be made.
1: So, and of course, there were also um, differences in denomination um, among Europeans, which are uh, a part of the story. Um, that's kind of hovering in the background a bit. So what about those differences, say, between the, the Protestant Christians from Europe um, versus the Catholic Christians from Europe? Are Is there a parallel story to be told and was there competition between between those groups?
2: Yes. So, I mean, there's, a comp- there's competition on the level of uh, collecting. I mean, one very much gets a sense, particularly by the time you get to Huntington in the 1670s, that uh, Uh, various uh, European states, particularly uh, England and France, are very much in uh, competition, uh, or or the collectors in Aleppo are very much in competition uh, from those different uh, nations in terms of uh, their attempts to collect manuscripts. And the the French are, in some senses, um, uh, much uh, better equipped to do this, partly because of the uh, initiative of uh, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, uh, Louis the Fourteenth minister, who who has a whole network of uh, collectors sent out all across the Middle East, uh, including Aleppo, uh, and many of these uh, uh, people come into come onto Huntington's radar, and Huntington, uh, as I say, is very much uh, in competition with them. So, that, so there's a there's a kind of acquisitiveness among Europeans, which very much puts them at odds with uh, one another. But that's only one part of the story, and the other uh, part I tell is that. Uh, Actually, you tend to see, and again, particularly with Huntington, uh, very good uh, relationships between the uh, English merchants and the English chaplains and the Roman Catholic um, clerics who who, who are uh, residents in um, uh, across the Middle East. And this maybe comes to the fore more in the antiquarian section of the book than in the section on manuscripts, because I try to talk about the way in which the whole. Uh, Uh, phenomenon uh, of traveling to Jerusalem. It's very much a long established uh, uh, Catholic practice and that when English merchants and English chaplains begin to do this they're very much dependent on the uh, on the on the Catholics both for the kind of uh, uh, sort of straightforward infrastructural things places to stay and possibilities to travel but also for the kind of knowledge and and traditions which have uh, built up around the pilgrimage and I try to point to various places where you can see these uh, quite good uh, relationships between the Europeans and the Roman Catholic merchants. so there's so, so there's two sides to that story really, I think, about um, confessional European confessional differences.
1: So i um, now turning to a, a different question um, that one of the audience members has asked, which if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just briefly um, answer, which is how dominant, this is from al-Qanun. how dominant was the usage of the Jewish Arabic script in the Levant compared to its usage in Egypt? And uh, the answer is exactly the same, um, which is to say that um, especially rabbinic Jews um, wrote most of their uh, Arabic writings using Hebrew script Um, It was uh, Karaites and Samaritans um, who uh, tended to use Arabic script more for writing Arabic, although not exclusively. Um, And here there really aren't uh, regional differences so much as there are, to come back to this, denominational differences. Um, Now, uh, a question from Michael Ledger Lomas. Um, Does the commerce model, which you posit for Aleppo and then extend to the Persian Gulf, work for other areas of early modern cultural contact, for example, North America, um, in relation to, you know, knowledge, if not, perhaps, to, to texts?
2: Yes, well, it's a very good question. And maybe I, maybe I could sort of uh, take a step back there and go back to, to the question which you asked originally, Marina, about the sort of origins for the book. Uh, and one of the things that uh, uh, I, I thought about a lot when I was, was sort of first coming up with the idea of it was reading in the history of science, and particularly the way that... Uh, historians of science had had, had done uh, in a way which I thought that historians of scholarships had, had not really had begun to think about how uh, science in Western Europe was 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 very closely bound up with um, European uh, expansion in, in other parts of the world uh, and particularly uh, thinking about the kind of institutional nature of that uh, expansion and the, the idea of trading companies and uh, colonies etc and uh, and how uh, and, and in what ways this was connected with development of science. And I suppose I, what, what I tried to do in a sense was to take some of that uh, way of thinking about things and to apply it to a world which might have seemed at first a bit more resistant to it, this world of uh, humanist scholarship and universities. Uh, so in that sense, I would say that, that there, there there is a link between uh, Aleppo and other parts of the world in terms of uh, inquiry, but then of course Aleppo uh, and, and the Middle East generally is very particular to human scholarship because it, because it has these links with uh, manuscripts and intellectual cultures which were um, closely related to, to European interests. So I'm not sure that one could quite have done anything like the same thing in terms of the the, the, um, the intellectual aspects of the book. Um, in another context, I mean, maybe uh, further east. If you you could certainly do something, perhaps a later story about um, the, the British in India and the way that was connected. And you know, indeed, many people have, but perhaps not with uh, North America. Although I might be, uh, I might be wrong about that. But that's my feeling.
1: Now a question from Mela from Utrecht University. The relationship between empire and religion has been much debated, especially for the 19th century. How to describe that relationship in the period that you've studied given such efforts as, for example, the boyle pocock grotius collaboration?
2: Yes, that's a very good question. Um, I suppose in one way it was, I always thought as I was writing the book that it was important to me that um, I was I was telling a, a particular story which occurred before the end of the um, uh, the 18th century and before the um, Napoleonic invasion of Egypt and it was a sort of at least in my mind a kind of pre uh, Empire story in, in relation to the way that the the British were um, uh, the, the English and then the British were, were operating in the Ottoman Empire and that, and that I think is very much um, uh, reflected in the way that the, the Levant company works. The Levant company was very uh, conservative in some ways and didn't really have a make didn't really have a kind of expansionist philosophy uh, um in distinction to the to the to the English East India Company. And so I think that the, the sense that um my chaplains weren't there as agents of empire so to speak is an important part of what they were doing and, and it again goes back to that question we talked about earlier about the way that they're having to they're always having to edge their way into things which pre-exist them uh, and which over which they don't necessarily have control and so it's, it's very much a story about um what happens in uh, encounters between different cultures in an age before empire or at least when the um when the english aren't, aren't the uh, the imperialists because they're in uh, you know certainly what in the through most of the story is a, is a very uh, an empire uh, um in terms of the ottoman empire so I suppose in terms of the, the Pocock um, uh, gracious collaboration, so maybe I'll just explain for other listeners that I think what the reference is to um, uh, an, an attempt by um, uh, Pocock, Pocock to, uh, to translate uh, a book by Hugo Gracious into, into Arabic and to, uh, and to distribute it. I would see this as um, and, and I try to portray it in the book as something which is I wouldn't necessarily see. As, uh, as connected to the, to the beginnings of um, an imperialist project. Uh, that's not to say that uh, some of the people behind it, particularly Robert Boyle might have thought of it in, to, to some extent in that way, but that's not really I think how Pocock um, would have thought of it. And, um, uh, and I think rather different things are going on than, uh, than, than a straightforward link between religion and, uh, and imperialism. And it was in some sense to try to understand what those things were which was one of the things I particularly wanted to do in, in the book.
1: So, and I suppose a follow-up question to that, also from mela, like Lama, is, uh, did the English chaplain's approach to proselytization engender any responses from local communities that we know of?
2: Yes, uh, the answer is yes, and uh, set out in more detail in the final, part of the book. It follows on from the the, the, part of the, the former part of the question about um, Pocock's translation of, uh, of Hugo Gracious and Pocock also translates um, parts of the English uh, service into, into Arabic. And I go on in the book to uh, talk about uh, what I thought um, setting out was the much uh, less known part of the story about what happens in the 18th century, which most of which relates to, not actually to a chaplain, but to an English merchant called Roland Sherman, who gets very involved uh, with the Greek Orthodox Church on, on a very local level in Aleppo, and uh, and this results in the production of the, the Bibles, which I showed in the last slide, uh, Arabic um, Psalter and an Arabic New Testament, which uh, the English um, then attempt to distribute mainly among Christians in Syria. So they do attempt to, to proselytize, but I think that. Um, it's a, it's a big topic, but maybe I'll just say two things. Firstly, that the whole, as I try to tell it, the whole of that story has to be understood against the much more sophisticated and in a way much more successful project of Roman Catholics to to do the same uh, thing in Syria, supported by a much more uh, uh, developed um, uh, organization, such as the propaganda Fide, which don't exist at that point in the Protestant world. And the second thing I would say is that um, I'm not really sure that it's, as it may be later, a straightforward case of um, uh, English people trying to uh, convert anybody to Anglicanism. I try to see it much more uh, as an attempt by um, people like Sherman, and not really quite so much on an institutional level, to defend what they see as the independent uh, churches of the Middle East, the Greek Orthodox Church, against Roman Catholicism. So the the whole question of Roman Catholic uh, proselytization can't really be taken out of the story. Sorry, that's probably that um, may be a complicated answer, but, uh, but it's it set out more coherently in the, the final part of the book.
1: I mean, it's, it's a, it was a very rich... Rich answer, which is excellent. Um, A question now from Gregor Schwab, who is um, an expert in Arabic and Judeo-Arabic manuscripts. Uh, Congratulations on your fascinating book, which I had the chance to read. Uh, To what extent did you come across European figures involved in the commerce of manuscripts in 17th century Aleppo, where we have no clue about the current whereabouts of their acquisitions? And I would just also like kind of try to throw in a broadening of the question there, which is, um, you know, are there are there untold stories even mm. of, um, you know, un- manuscript collectors whom we can't trace at all?
2: Yes, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, it was probably clear, uh, well, it would be clear to anybody who's read the book, but it would probably be clear from the slides as well that the, the two most important uh, uh, collectors I'm talking about, uh, Pocock and Huntington, to, to some extent, uh, it, w- it was possible to do that because their collections are still preserved uh, as entire collections in, in the Bodleian Library. But um, yes, uh, in answer to the question, there were uh, and are an some chaplains who collected uh, whose um, whose books I, w- I was I was not able to find. One of them is uh, Robert Huntington. I'm sorry, um, Robert Frampton. Uh, Robert Frampton is in many ways he's uh, he's a central figure in the book. But most of what I say about him. Is based on a rather mysterious uh, biography, uh, which was um, written uh, by an unknown author, and uh, and um, in which in which um, the author says that uh, uh, Frampton did put together quite a large collection of manuscripts, but uh, unfortunately, uh, despite my searches, I wasn't able to find out what happened to them. So he could that, that something could turn up which would illuminate uh, Robert Frampton's books at some point. Uh, and there were others as well, actually, um, uh, you mentioned Marina, um, uh, John Gies, uh, John Gies was um, a fairly minor figure, but he was the, the brother of, uh, of an Oriental scholar in England called William Gies. And it's, it's uh, certain from some uh, aside comments in letters that uh, he also collected manuscripts, but I wasn't able to find out what happened to his, unfortunately, either.
1: um Thank you for that. Um, so now a, a very different type of question drilling into this kind of you know, micro history of material culture um, and the infrastructure without which we can't actually understand how any of this worked. Um, this is from Ahmed Al Mamouri who asks, what are the most important transportation methods and the most important types of ships used for the purposes of transport and trade between Britain, Turkey and, uh, and the Middle East in this period? He's the director of the Basra Museum.
2: Right. OK. Uh, well, that's uh, I, I have to admit, I couldn't uh, I haven't got the uh, technical know how to describe the exact types of ships uh, which were used. Um, maybe perhaps what I could say as far as it relates to manuscripts is I was very interested in trying to um, work out from the Levant company uh, records. Uh, the the kind of uh, the schedule, if you like, of, of shipping, and it was uh, therefore possible to uh, to think about the way that it, that people would have been able to convey manuscripts um, back to back to England, and uh, and and I suppose what really came to the fore of that was the the, the extraordinary difficulty that uh, that this would have uh, occasioned, and and uh, and how much kind of um, uh, practical planning would have had to to to, to go into doing that. So. Yeah, sorry that's probably not a very good answer to the, to the question but uh, the
1: shipping schedules are actually very interesting i mean you also have some caravan information right caravan schedules are another another big deal um, for for the transport of these manuscripts so so yes you, you did deal with that um that was impressive by the way right now how you just switched into german so i'm glad that happened um so now a question from uh from haig smith Um, The chaplains seem to have been encouraged to develop relationships with local merchants, brokers, and intellectuals by the Levant company. And the question is, did those relationships have a purpose or an intent beyond the exchange of knowledge? Was there a kind of awareness um, that they served, that the relationship served to benefit the commercial aspirations of the company? Um, You know, in the way that sort of like, you know, cultural attaches um, are doing a kind of soft diplomacy. I think that that might have been part of the intent of this question.
2: Yeah, that's, it's, one of th- it's one of the things I really tried to uh, think hard about when I was writing the book. And um, I think in general, uh, I would probably say uh, no, that, the, that most, of, most of the things that I'm interested in, uh, i.e. manuscript collecting, these kind of antiquarian expeditions, didn't really seem to do anything to, to, to benefit the company. Um, that said, I think it's, it's probably important uh, to say that the, that the company directors um, certainly didn't object to. Uh, chaplains doing this uh, kind of thing. Uh, uh, one of the sources I used to do this was to go very carefully through um, the, the, the records of the, the meetings. So the general court of the Levant company met um, uh, uh, weekly and, and, and recorded in, in some detail their, their meetings. And I was able to, to read through those and to look at the moments where they appointed chaplains and try to work out what their um, know what their what their agenda was and what they were trying to achieve. And there were there were various points where they would say things along the lines of uh, it would be a great um, benefit to our nation to appoint such a learned man as Doctor So and So to to be chaplain in uh, in Aleppo. But they didn't. But it that didn't really seem to equate equate to the uh, you know the idea of there being cultural attaches or in any sense. It was I think it was more more a sense that uh learning and holiness and um, uh, a a good moral life was were, were, were uh would be would come together so um yeah so 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 the two things are are quite different really i think
1: so um we have uh we've exhausted the the questions in the q a but i did want to ask you one one final question as we move towards wrapping things up here and that is what are you working on now what's your next project going to be
2: Ah, good question. Well, uh, I, I'm very interested in, uh, I, so I'm, I'm currently in uh, Hallow, I think, uh, Carousel is in Germany, but I'm in Hallo, and I'm, uh, I'm currently working on a number of things, one of them about um, uh, a, a fairly minor uh, German uh, scholar and, um, uh, and uh, a, 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 an organizer of uh, Protestant missions in the 18th century called Johann Heinrich Kallenberg. So That's one project another project is uh, I'm very interested in uh, a Syrian Christian uh, known to the, the, the most of the people he met as Carolus uh, Raleigh Dadichi, uh, who was also in Hala uh, and so his story and his adventures are something which um, I'm hoping to, uh, to, to to finish at some point soon.
1: Well we'll look hugely forward to uh, to reading your subsequent work. Um, and uh, and it's been absolutely great hearing you talk about about this book. And I'll hand it back to Carol now.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, thank you, Marina. Thank you, Simon, very much for that um, fascinating insight into uh, different world of the seventeenth, eighteenth century and trade in manuscripts and uh, and and what it, what it sort of said about relations um, between the UK or. And, uh, and the region at that time it's uh yes it's a very different world to the to the 19th century um to the 19th century one um, and a fascinating again insight and uh, it's great actually to catch up with you uh uh sort of 10 years later on behalf of cbrl and sort of see see where it uh, all went and hear you um, speak i was just saying when we were connecting i was actually reminded um, that I knew you were going to publish a book sometime about now and I was looking at the history of the Department of Antiquities and I found that a past uh, Director General from the 1950s who worked with Kathleen Kenyon had written his thesis, one of the first theses at SOAS on uh, the traders of Aleppo and it made me think, ah, I wonder where Simon is. And so here we are, here we are today. So that's... um, uh, so it's really good to connect with you and see you doing so well and, and uh, hearing about uh, your new projects and also fantastic to have um, Marina Rusto with us today, sort of bringing a different insight um, into sort of the world of CBRL uh, webinars um, and a very different uh, kind of, uh, of Levant um, to today. <laughs> so. Thank you very much indeed for accepting the invitation to chair. Um, So I'd also like to thank everybody who's joined us today for this CBRL um, webinar. We hope you enjoyed the event. Um, And please do uh, look at our website uh, for future events. The next event in this series is going to be on the 18th of November, another Wednesday at 5pm, rather than our usual Uh, 4 p.m. by Dr. Gerasimo Sorapas, who's senior lecturer in Middle East politics at the University of Birmingham, who's going to be talking about a very contemporary subject of migration diplomacy in the Levant, lessons from the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, So please, if you can, uh, join us then Um, And if you'd like to hear more, we do everything from very contemporary issues to archeological to historical uh, uh, issues, Um, please uh, consider signing up for our um, our email list, uh, following us on on, uh, Twitter or Facebook um, or LinkedIn. And even uh, we also membership society. So even becoming a member, this would all be very much um, appreciated. And uh, thank you all for your interest in the Levant and for joining us today. So, so uh, goodbye um, from Amman and from wherever you are.